G'day legends, welcome back to Off The Track, Cashy here, and Nick and I thought since we're going on vacation and we won't be recording any more interviews for a couple of months, we'll put together a best of episode. So we've taken all five interviews that we've done in the last six months, that's Dill Gibbons, Timmy Clark, Gary Moore, Tyler Schiller, and of course Matt Dunning. We've taken our favourite clips from them, put them together so you can listen back to all of the good stories. Throughout the episode, you're going to hear from when Dill Gibbons joined the racing world and what motivated him to become a jockey, all the way to Matt Dunning explaining what happened that fateful night when he kicked his infamous drop goal. It's a great listen, legends. I hope you like it. And if you do, make sure to give us a five-star rating on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. It'll really help us grow coming into the spring when the Quaddy Potty returns. So I hope you like it, and we'll see you in the spring. Before we get into the episode, I can't forget to shout out our sponsors at Stridal. Stridal is where entertainment meets opportunity within the horse racing world. And if you head to their website right now, stridal.com, you will be able to see all of the available horses that are listed for purchase right now across some of the top syndicators and some of the top trainers around the country. If you want to get into the horse racing ownership world, then Stridal is here to help you. Head to the website right now and get shopping today. Episode 1, Dylan Gibbons, how Dylan got started in racing. So you've obviously come from a racing family. Um, how early in your life did you decide you wanted to follow in your father's footsteps? It's pretty funny. I've had a, a few people ask me that question, and as silly as it sounds, it, it was never like I made a decision that just how obsessed I was with racing from day dot. I don't think there was ever a picture of me from the moment I was born. I wasn't playing with, you know, racehorse toys and setting things up like races. So growing up, I just always assumed I was going to be a jockey and it was sort of that well-known. Everybody around me just assumed I was too and probably wasn't until I I shot up a bit in height that people started to question it. But by that point, I was a bit older and, and was sort of able to put that in the back burner and just do what I needed to do. But yeah, there was never really a doubt in my mind I was going to be anything else. I, no other job in the world interested me like racing. And, yeah, I just had a one-track mind from day one. Yeah, fair enough. And what's it like to race against your dad? Obviously, um, would there be plenty of banter thrown around between the two of you? Yeah, we've, we've, had, <laughs> we've had a couple of Cornellas, which is um, it's, it's a bit awkward if you're, if you're the winner because you, you sort of don't know what to say but when you run second you hurl all the abuse you want so it's um, it's yeah it's, it's pretty good though like it's you know not many people say they get can do their profession with with family so it, it's pretty cool to do it and and you know it's at least when you go on head and head as, as much as i want to beat him at least if if he beats me or vice versa you can pop it a bit easy because it it's stayed in the family so yeah you do get bragging rights and it hurts a bit but look at least at least it stays in the family at the end of the day yeah, 100%, especially because I'm pretty sure, looking through the stats, correct me if I'm wrong, you've already won up the old man because you won that group three. I don't know if your dad ever mm-hmm. did win the group. Do you let him know about that? Oh, yeah, I let him know that straight away. He was, um, <laughs> he's, he's only got a listed race to his name, so I was um, I, I quickly remind him about that every chance I get. So, yeah, I've got one up on him there. Oh, fair enough. So, talking about that group three victory, just uh, talk us through that. We just... Episode 2, Tim Clark, on his experiences racing in Hong Kong. 
Fair enough. Um, building on that, a couple of years later in 2011, um, you decided to move over to Hong Kong and have a go over there. So what, what led you over there to Hong Kong? Yeah, it was just, you know, I was obviously approached by the, the Hong Kong Jockey Club to, um, you know, to see if I'd be interested in interested in putting in an application. So, um, you know, some people might know that how, how it works, like you've sort of got to apply and and pretty much like put in a resume, you know, to to see if you can you can get a gig there. So it's not just a matter of turning up. You've got to, you know, you, there's protocols that go through, and they have a licensing committee and all that sort of stuff. So um, I guess it was one of those things where I thought that um, you know I didn't want to knock that opportunity back, and then and then not get the opportunity later on in in life to do it and, and regret it. So. Although, um, you know, it probably was um, a bit early, I guess. I was still pretty young and, you know, uh, you know, as far as my riding goes, I may not have been quite quite ready for that step, but it was just an opportunity that I felt was, um, was worth taking up. So, yeah, I spent uh, the best part of, of two seasons over there and, and, and had, you know, yeah, you know, I didn't didn't shoot the lights out of it, but I I did I did well, I guess. Um, and, and I was able to ride a um, a domestic Group One winner over there as well. So, yeah, no, like I, you know, I was never it was never a long term um, thing for me, but I, I did want to go over there and do just do a couple of seasons and and um, you know just to just so I could uh, you know didn't regret not going. Fair enough. And what's the biggest change over in Hong Kong? Is it is it the food or is it like just the living style over there? Is there anything that really like was a lot different from us? Obviously, it's going to be different, but was the food, that, that's what I think. I feel like the food would be so much different over there. It's pretty westernized. Like it, you can you can get your, your hands on, on most things um, like that are pretty common to what we have here. So, um, you know, some, you know, going out to restaurants and it definitely was some things that, on the menu that you're like, what the hell is that? <laughs> but um, most most of the times you could, yeah you could get what you wanted. But I guess the the thing about Hong Kong, we will you know the, the jockey club also you know they look after you to you where you're living. You know I lived on on course there at Sha Tin. The apartments are, are really big. Um, where I think you know in some other places in in the city where you know like I think they're very small and like really small units and you know people families are crowded in and, and that sort of thing but um the living where we were living it was spacious and and that but i guess the, the the big challenge over there was you were going over there with um yeah douglas white was the king of hong kong at the time when i went um brett preble was over there and he challenged him in a couple of premierships um, I was going over there and pretty much just having to start at the bottom and, and try and work my way up. Like, it, there's no, doesn't matter how good you are here or, or, or what you've achieved over there. You've, you've just got to pretty much prove yourself from, from the bottom and, and work your way up. And, um, that was obviously challenging. Um, the, the two tracks, you know, Sha Tin's not too bad, but Happy Valley, obviously a, a, a unique track. 
Um, Shark Tin's more sort of stock standard and similar to you know some Australian tracks. But yeah, Happy Valley was a was a different beast altogether. But it was um, yeah, it was it was a good, very enjoyable experience. That's for sure. That's good. Well, it was good that it wasn't too much of a culture shock. But like you talk, having to work your way up from the bottom. What do you think would have been the biggest difference racing wise? So like you say, the tracks are somewhat similar, but Happy Valley is a different beast entirely. Like when you're out on the track riding the horses, what would be the biggest difference between a race in Hong Kong and a race in Australia? Um, the, the racing styles are, are somewhat similar. Like they're good speed, they race. I, and I think that's why like Australian jockeys do so well there. Like we do race similarly, sim- like in a similar style. Like we race tight and, and that. But like Happy Valley was so unique that if you were, you know, the difference, between being on the fence and being one off could have meant length where, you know, like not, not, not because of bias, just because of the, the circumference of the track. And, and when the rails out there, Happy Valley, it kicks you real wide. Um, and horses on the, on the fence, they can say two or three lengths just because of the, it's pretty much just because of the sheer circumference of the track and how tight that last bend is when, when, um, when the rail is out and it, it kicks you out. So, um, you know, being really mindful of, of those things and, and you know, the, the um, you know, yeah, good barriers are, are really important and a couple of them start there. So you've got to be really on your toes. Um, you've got to be really – and I think every race over there is, you know, like it's, it's like a group one. You know, every race is so important to them. Um, they bet so much on it. The, the turnover is incredible on every single race. So you, you know, you might, be, you know, it's not like turning up to um, like a provincial country meeting here. And not that it doesn't mean anything. We all go there to win, but that the pressure um, riding in Hong Kong, every meeting, every race, um, it was yeah, like like riding in a you know, in a group race every, every single time you went out there, and that's how you had to treat it. Episode 3, Gary Moore, on his famous win in the Winter Bottom Stakes, where he ran down the Ascot straight. But, I mean, getting back to takedown, he was the revelation for um, my training career in Australia. I, we'd known the, uh, the Thompsons through... Dad, knowing Anthony Thompson's father, Bim. And I said to Anthony one day, I said, Anthony, what about giving me a horse to train? So he thought about it. He said, look, I've got this horse. He's 16-3. He's a big monster of a thing. He leads the other yearlings at that time around. He said, I'll give you this to train. And anyway, so takedown comes to Rose Hill my stable staff watch him walk into the stable and they said, wow, what an awful horse. <laughs> so I just smiled. Then I got him going and I thought, wow, this horse, is for a big horse, good mover. Carries himself well. So got him going and I said to Anthony, I said, Anthony, what I'm going to do is I'm going to trial him next week and he'll trial really well from what he's shown me on the track. So I tra- trialed him at Rose Hill and he wouldn't believe it. He's second last in the trial. So Anthony and his other part owner, Rob Anderson, says, what happened? You told me this horse goes well. So uh, got him back, started working, and I put the blinkers on him. 
trialled him two weeks later, bounced fast, uh, won the trial. And I thought, wow, we got him where we want him. So I set him for a race at Kembla Grange, not knowing that I was going to run into a Godolphin horse that was later a Group 1 winner. Ran third, still a good run over 1,000 metres. Then I ran him at Hawkesbury, 1,200, he won. And then I, I ran him in the, uh, the uh, Black Opal, yeah. Canberra. Jump, led, won well. Really exciting. Unfortunately, it wasn't there. I was at the sales in Adelaide. But he just continued to go forward, go forward. Won the Bailey at Rose Hill. Won numerous, you know, great races. And then I took him down to Melbourne and he started to go in the wind. So we did a tie back with him, come back. Dr. Donald Lumsden ran with was very pleased with how the operation went. Um, ran him at Caulfield, should have won, got hemmed in. And then I got a call from, from WA and they asked me to nominate him for the winner bottom. So I thought, why not? Nothing to lose, S- eh? Nothing to lose. Uh, asked Tim Clark to ride him, who wrote a lot of great winners for me. Took him over to Perth. It worked well leading into the race. We won. And I thought, wow, this is fantastic. My first group one went, I'm going to run up the track (laughs) (laughs) and uh, have Tim come back slowly, uh, present a takedown to the the numerous race fans that were there. But that was a pretty special day and then got a call from Hong Kong. So to be able to take him to Hong Kong for the Hong 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 Kong International Sprint which, I mean, if he had a broke better and didn't get knocked down at the first turn, I think he would have been pretty close to the money. But unfortunately, after that, he never come back from that race. Couldn't get him going. And I suggested to um, Anthony Thompson that he maybe try another trainer, uh, which they, they did. Uh, but he never regained the, um, the form that he uh, possessed uh, prior to the... Um, where he was with the um, his winner of the winter bottom. Yeah, I've seen the I've seen the videos of you jumping the fence and running down the straight. Um, what explain to me why was that the celebration of choice? Did just pure elation? Is that what happened, or well, it might have been the white wine? Yeah, <laughs> no, but I mean elation to think you know I, I broke 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 my my you know, broke what every trainer wants to do is train a group one winner. So I just couldn't hold my, um, like I'd already done it before at Randwick, but it's funny, after takedown won the winter bottom, I had numerous fans come to me, race day, uh, you know, like when I had a runner. Uh, a lot of young kids, in fact, said to me, listen, when are you going to run up and down the track again? <laughs> I said, I haven't got a horse good enough to be able to do it, and I'm about five years older, <laughs> but I'm just as fit. Did they ever try and stop you? Did you ever go to mount the fence and then the security guards run over and stop you from doing it? I Look, I... I I was very lucky in that area, Mitchell, because the stewards could have said, look, you broke the rules, you know, you're running up and down the track, you're not supposed to do that. But they were, they were sort of must have just taken a blind eye to it and uh, allowed me, you know, to do it on these. I think I did it at Randwick one day when takedown won the group two. Yep. And, uh, but, you know, it was just so special to be able to accomplish that feat while training in Australia. Episode 4, Tyler Schiller on winning the Group 1 Galaxy on Maria Mayer. Yeah, it was great. I thought when I won the Cozy, I thought that was the biggest race I was going to win for a, a fairly long time. But to come out and win the Galaxy on Maria Mayer was um, 
unreal. Went over Route 1 as an apprentice and to be able to do it for Joe, he's a great trainer and he supported me a lot coming through. So, yeah, bloody unreal feeling and to be able to be getting those opportunities at such a early stage in my career is fantastic. Oh, 100%. Did it come as a shock? Of course, you're always going out there to win, but, like, did you have a feeling like you had a few Group 1 rides on the day? Did you think, okay, maybe today's the day I get the monkey off the back and get that first Group 1, or...? Yeah, I went out there confident enough, but I didn't expect anything. I knew I drew a good gate. I was on a great mare that had proven herself in group company, but to be going up against previous last start group one winners like Uncommon James, um, I know we met him well at the weight, but to come out and actually knock him over and feed him that, that comfortably, I thought, yeah, it was bloody good feet by the mare. 100%. Would you say that... Maria May is now your horse going forward. Like, we know that, you know, jockeys can often become synonymous with horses after big wins and stick on them. Do you think you don't want anyone kicking you off Maria May? Yeah, I'd like to think I could stick with her. Um, I think she's going to the Doom and 10,000 next start, and I'd love to get the call up to go up there and ride her. And I'm sure after the TJ, she's run a great race there behind some great sprinters, so... She's on the right path for the Demon 10,000. Oh, she's a beautiful horse. She's really come out of nowhere, this prep. Were you on her in the track work at all, like back towards the start of the prep before she came out and started non-stop winning? Did, or were you just plonked on the first ride and away it went? No, nah, I didn't ride her work at all. I was actually supposed to ride her first up at Rose Hill when Dylan won on her. And I already had a ride in the race. So my first ride on her was in a group one and, um, Joe's done a great job to get her from Benchmark Company getting up here to Sydney and winning group races and especially a group one it's a oh, big yeah. turnaround oh, from yeah, a great yeah. train definitely did you and Dill have any banter then since you know if, it, if things were different maybe Dill could have gotten his group one there or no nah, I think um, she had too light of a weight for Dylan but he was he told me that she was a lovely horse and great ride and he, he probably had a bit more confidence than me in it, to be honest. <laughs> is that sort of stuff that you guys talk about regularly? Like, do you often share with other jockeys if they've had experience on horses? Do you seek them out to get advice on what they're like and how to go about riding them? Or is it very much, you know, magician never reveals their secrets? Yeah, we definitely share enough. Um, if someone asks us about a horse that we've ridden, we'll say what we know about them, but um, I'm sure some people keep their secrets. <laughs> <laughs> um, when it comes to Maria Mayer, though, do you reckon after the Doom and 10,000, if she runs well, come springtime, could she be an Everest horse? Yeah, definitely. She matched it with the best the other day. She didn't get beat much over three lengths, I think, and it probably wasn't her most favoured gait. She drew out wide in the car park and, and ended up having to sit three or four wide the trip. But um, she ran on really well from the 200 in. So if she keeps improving, she's proven herself at weight for age. And I think, um, yeah, she's in for a really good prep. Oh, fingers crossed. Episode 5, Matt Dunning on his infamous drop goal that cost the Waratahs a final spot in the 2003 Super Rugby season. 
Let, um, we'll move aside from this. I'm going to go backtrack a little bit. 2003 in the Waratahs, the famous drop goal of yours. Yeah. Let's talk us through it. What What's going on there? Well, I just can't believe like, so, so Johnny Wilkinson, um, can I swear? You can swear. Yeah, go ahead. So Johnny Wilkinson gets fucking knighted in 2003 <laughs> for his drop goal. I kick a goal that was definitely for 20 metres further, a much harder kick, and I get ridiculed. Um yeah, look, that's twenty years ago now. It's literally, it's over twenty. It was May. Yeah, we were we were one years old when it happened. One so year old. That, I've that gone. We've gone back and done the research and seen watched it. Many many replays. But please um, explain to those who wouldn't realise why, like, a, that was a bad thing to get yeah. points on the board and to get further in front. So we we I think we were winning like uh, seventeen something. You'll know. Yeah, you're yep. up by five or something. You know, it was 60 minutes in, 68 minutes into the game. Uh, we needed four tries for the bonus point to make the semis. So if we got four tries, we are in the fourth spot ahead of the Brumbies. That was pretty much down to that. We'd scored four tries. There was 12 minutes. If you see the footage, you know, they infringed the ruck. You know, the ball gets thrown by Wits. His arm gets slapped. The ball, instead of going to someone, lateral went to me who was bludging straight behind him. 68 minutes <laughs> is a long time for a front row to be in the paddock. Like, I... Like, people forget that. Like, yeah. we used to have one prop reserve. So you, one prop would generally always play 80 minutes or at least a large portion if they didn't come back on. So um, 68 minutes, the ball gets tapped out. I catch it off my ankles. They're playing advantage. Everyone knows the advantage. There's nothing on, nothing on. So in that stage of rugby, when they played advantage, everyone would just snap a drop goal uh, and miss. you miss and you get the penalty. Get the penalty, so yeah. Uh, yeah. So I... Uh, I did the same thing, <laughs> except I hit this thing as Pure, sweet as beautiful. a nut. <laughs> it just it just goes it, it, it goes straight as a die, <laughs> and I it's I can still slant in slow motion. I'm chasing this ball, trying to drag it back, thinking I could, it was just nothing. I could, it, literally it went it went so slow in time. It was like something out of the movies where they slow it down. I'm chasing. Ah, I could see it happening, and and I knew very early that it wasn't going to miss. And there was nothing I could do about it. So, look, was it was it overplayed a bit? Probably, yeah. uh, but why not? Because it's funny. For one, props don't kick drop goals. <laughs> Two, it you know it, it's theatre. It'll get bigger and bigger. We still didn't get the four tries. We still got the kick off back. But I guess we got the ball back on our forty. Where if I hadn't have kicked it, we would have gone for touch and been in there twenty two on the attack. Everyone forgets the other the, the missed tries, but we could have scored that night. Um, no, you're the replay that gets talked no, about. So, <laughs> so the next morning, I'm in the hotel room, and I go, I, I check. We, we had a big after a season. You used to have a big drink back then. So you have a big drink after. We drunk for the next two days actually, because uh, it was the end of our season, Super Rugby season. So I go to my hotel. I got all these text messages saying, "Are you okay? Don't worry about it. Head up." I go, "Well, it's only like that bad. Like, yeah, it was a drop goal, but like there were so many other things to it." Anyway, I grab the paper in and um, I pull it in and I. Look at the paper, and I turn around, and the back page said "dumb" and "dunning." Oh. So that's what they were texting about. Stitch so up, bit of a stitch up. And the next uh, back page was "dumb and dunning" part two, but that was a different story. So that was a, <laughs> that was a bad Monday expedite. Uh, um, <laughs> no, no. So that was sort of the drop goal down to the T. But that, look, mate. Within two weeks, I was in, well, less than a week. I was in a Wallaby camp for the first time with all those guys that we spoke about earlier. Yeah, yeah. You know, I remember just turning up at Wallaby camp. And Wendell and and um, and the boys making jokes about the drop goal and the incident that happened a few days after and you know 
I was just, you know, it was it was a World Cup year, so uh, it came up more sort of, um, it's come up more sort of more frequency sort of uh, in the last 10 years than probably I remember in the first 10 years of that. Probably because, you know, YouTube comes out, social media comes out. That's probably a two. Shared I, around. I think about that. Probably when it first happened, there wasn't the YouTube and that, but since it's... Um, That's yeah, the mate, it's, uh, Now, you, 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 apparently, my kids tell me if you Google me, you, you, apparently I... The drop goal and two intercepts is the only thing you see. <laughs> yeah, I was, that's the other thing. So yeah. for 20 years career, all it comes up is a drop <laughs> goal and two intercepts. That's it. Um, as we so there you have it, legends. Our favourite moments from our first five interviews that we've done so far. If you liked it, make sure to give us a five-star rating. It'll really help our growth coming into the spring when the Quaddy Potty returns. And if you like the interviews, make sure to let us know. Let us know who you'd like us to interview in the upcoming months. We've got a few big names lined up. We think you're going to love it. But until we get back from vacation and we attack the spring carnival head on, stay safe and we'll see you then. Cheers, legends.